Jeremiah chapter 1. Remember, your homework was to read chapters 1 and 2, and I hope you did because there's no way we're going to cover all of it. Um, but we are going to take big bites out of it. Look at chapter 1. It says, The word of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah, of the priest who were in Anatha, in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. In the thirteenth year of his reign, not Jeremiah's reign, he wasn't a king, he was a prophet, but Josiah's reign. Verse 3, it came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the carrying away of Jerusalem captive in the fifth month. Jeremiah is a book, you know, we refer to Jeremiah as the weeping prophet. Uh, he's brokenhearted. He's got a message. It's not one message. He has many messages, many things to say. It's the word of the Lord. And, and some of these things are hard to hear. I mean, most of them are hard to hear. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming because... Judah, you've been stiff-necked, you've been rebellious, you've, you've, you've followed, you know, these images that you've created with your own hands, you know, and you know better. And so judgment is coming. And the means of the judgment, the, the, the way God is bringing this judgment upon you is he's raising up the Babylonians who are going to come down and uh, things are going to be very, very difficult. And so Jeremiah, you know, he's been referred to as a broken-hearted uh, prophet. Let me read this. It says, quote, His broken heart caused him to write a broken book, which is difficult to arrange chronologically or uh, topically. But through his sermons and signs, he faithfully declares, listen to this, that surrender to God's will is the only way to escape. I like that. I don't even know who wrote that. I don't. I had this in my notes. I'm not sure who wrote that, but I like the end of that. That surrender to God's will is the only way to escape, and that's the first bit of application. And we haven't even gotten into the book of Jeremiah. Listen, judgment is coming to this earth. The tribulation is coming to this earth. You're going to find as we go through the book of Jeremiah, because listen, I hope that you're not one of those that say, oh, it's Old Testament, it doesn't apply to us. It's Old Testament, it does apply to us. Because we are living in days that are similar to the days in which Judah was dealing with at the time. Judgment is coming. And so the book opens up by giving us kind of the family background of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was in the line of the priest. He, he was called to be a priest. Remember, you don't, you don't become a priest. You're born a priest. You're born into that particular family line. His father was a priest. He was going to be a priest. But we'll see in a moment that God had ordained him to be a prophet. So he would never serve as a priest. He would serve as a prophet. Now, we're told that his father's name was uh, Hilkiah. And Hilkiah, and, and, and also we're told that these words, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah during the time of, and he mentions three kings of Judah. And the first king he mentions is Josiah. Have you guys, do you guys, are you familiar with Josiah? Josiah, king of Judah, one of the faithful kings, there weren't many, but one of the faithful kings, he became a king, became the king of Judah when he was eight years old. And during his reign, uh, you know, as you read the book of Kings or Chronicles, um, you find that, you know, there, there were times when the temple was really in disarray. And so the temple was being repaired. There was damage done to the temple. And, um, and so uh, when Josiah was king, he, he instructed those to get a hold of the money that was collected, to gather the money, 
and uh, to give the money to the carpenters and the masons and all the you know all the people that are doing the work on the temple area and so they gathered the money together and as all of this you know this repair this construction work was going on at the at the temple they found and it sounds so strange to think that it was lost but they found the law they found the book of the law and so they brought the book of the law to the king and the book of the law was read to Josiah, the king, and Josiah's heart was just so moved. You know, he tears his clothes. He, you know, he, he's brokenhearted because, you know, this is God's word. And, oh, how far we've gone from God's word. And, um, and so, of course, as you read in, uh, you know, Kings, Second Kings, uh, we see that these reforms, you know, revival was taking place in the time of, of Josiah. Now, the, the priest who found the book of the law was a priest named Hilkiah. So here's the thing. Now, commentators will say, well, most likely this, that Hilkiah is not the same Hilkiah was, who was Jeremiah's father, who happened to be a king as well. And they say that because there were many kings, I'm sorry, many priests, many Levites that were named Hilkiah. So it gets a little bit confusing. But I share that with you just to simply say, what if it was? What if his father was the Hilkiah, the priest, who found the book of the law? Wouldn't that be interesting? And here Jeremiah ends up being called to be a prophet. We know that he was young. We don't know how old he was. But he was probably young enough to where he had not started serving as a priest. So look what it says, verse 4. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. Jeremiah is speaking. The word of the Lord came to me. And this is what the word of the Lord said. Verse 5. Behold, I, so now God is speaking to Jeremiah. Behold, I formed you in the womb. Oh, I'm sorry. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, so Jeremiah's response to this, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. I'm a youth. I'm inexperienced. I, I can't do this. And so the Lord responds, verse 7, So the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth. Look at this. I like this. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Jeremiah, stop. Jeremiah, you're going. Jeremiah, you're going to say what I send you to say. You know, guys, I, I love this because, again, sometimes I think we want to put the Lord on the same level as us. That You know, we could do that. We'll just kind of debate with the Lord and everything. If the Lord's called us to do something, our part is to simply surrender, submit, and say, yes, Lord. Because, you know, you we see this... This resistance. We saw this with Isaiah. Remember Isaiah when he was called. He says, "I'm, you know, I've got unclean lips. I'm a sinner. I'm undone. I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm a mess, you know." And we see the seraphim taking a coal from the altar, not from the altar of the temple on earth, but from heaven, and touching his lips, and and doing in essence what we see God doing with Jeremiah, putting his word. In Isaiah's mouth, and Isaiah was called, and he preached, and he was faithful to the task. But Jeremiah needed this uh, encouragement from the Lord. Do not say, I'm a youth. Look at verse 8. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations. Nations. Note that. Not over the nation, Judah. Over the nations. And this becomes clear as you read through and as you study Jeremiah. He was to prophesy judgment against Egypt and Moab and Ammon and other nations. And, and he says, and over the kingdoms, and this is your ministry, Jeremiah, to root out, to pull down, 
to destroy and to throw down. So it's announcing judgment, but then it goes on and says to build and to plant and to pronounce blessing. Guys, it's not all negative. And the prophet's ministry was not all negative. There was hope. I mean, that's why God raised up prophets. He raised up the prophets so that they might proclaim the coming judgment, that they might announce what's coming, giving the people opportunity to repent so that God might relent. Now, of course, many times, sadly, we see that the people just kind of, you know, shined it, you know, we're not interested in changing, Lord, and so the judgment did come. But there were times, we see in the scriptures, where people did repent, they heeded uh, the warning from the Lord, they repented, and the Lord relented from sending the judgment. So, I want you to note something in the first ten verses. God says, I will, the I wills, I formed you in the womb, I like that. It literally means to squeeze into shape like a potter. He said, I formed you. I knew you, verse 5. Before you were born, I sanctified you to make clean or to make holy. Again, verse 5, I ordained you to be a prophet to the nations. Verse 7, I sent you. Verse 7 again, um, I command you, you shall speak. Whatever I command you, you shall speak. Verse 8, I am with you to deliver you. Verse 9, I have put my words in your mouth. And then verse 10, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms. So it's the Lord that's doing it. It's God who's doing it. Why am I emphasizing that? Because we live in a strange time in church history where we have these men and women who like to say that they are prophets of God, prophet or prophetesses of God. You know what's interesting to me? When you see the modern-day prophets and how they prounce around and everything, it doesn't line up at all with what we see in the scriptures. We don't see any prophets of God, when they're called by God, that are really gung-ho about the whole thing. They're very reluctant. Why? Because they're humble people and they recognize, I'm not worthy. Who am I to be a prophet? Jeremiah says, I'm just a kid. I'm just a youth. No, he wasn't a you know, little kid. We don't know how old he was. Some suggest he might have been close to 20, you know, um, under 21. Um, but, but, you know, we know that uh, we see this humility. You know, me, I, I know who I am, Lord. I, I'm, I'm reluctant to do, do this because I know who I am. And we see these men and women, they just... It's, there's this irreverence, and they seem to have this, you know, almost like this hotline with God. At least they make it sound that way. And yet when you look at the prophets of God, it was God initiating. It was God speaking when he wanted to speak. It was God sending when he wanted to send. It wasn't the prophet that said, okay, God, give me a new one, you know. I want to go over here now. I want to say this over here. I want to go and take this on a tour. It was God that was directing everything. Now, it's important to understand this because, again, Jeremiah is announcing judgment, coming judgment. And it's important as he's writing these things down that people recognize, listen, this isn't Jeremiah. This isn't Jeremiah's thing. And the problem is, is that, all people can attack is what they see before them. So I see Jeremiah. In fact, it's interesting, as, as, uh, as God is calling Jeremiah and instructing Jeremiah and warning Jeremiah, in verse 8 he says, do not be afraid of their faces. You might say, well, what does that mean? Um, you would know what that means if you've ever taught the Bible and you've taught things that people don't like. <laughs> their faces. <laughs> he says, don't be afraid of their faces. I'm with you to deliver you. I mean, it's like the Lord reminds Jeremiah, this is not going to be an easy task. This is going to be a difficult thing, but I'm with you. Verse 11, moreover. Oh, you know what? Keep your hand here. Let's go to... Timothy, 1 Timothy, I think it is, let me see here, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 
kind of this I am a youth. You guys know this text. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. Paul, of course, he's instructing Timothy. And he says, no one despise your youth. And you look at that, and I remember as a young man um, thinking, well, how can, you, how can you keep people from despising your youth? How can you, how can you control what other people think of you? You, you can't, you know. Um, you know, I began doing ministry of one sort or another in my 20s. And, um, and uh, you know, pioneered the church when I was, uh, I think, 29. And, um, and always kind of felt that, you know, because there were always older people. I remember one time a guy on a Wednesday night, he was... Uh, just wrapped up in some heretical thing and everyone had left the building and I was alone with him and his son and and um, they were kind of trying to like like play the tough guy on me which doesn't work real well <laughs> because I came from that background so I just kind of you know called their bluff and I said you know you know you guys are heretics and the guy said, he pointed his finger at me, he says, I was teaching the Bible when you were in diapers. And I said, well, apparently you didn't learn much when you were teaching the Bible. Like, Get out of this church, you know. And, and he was just a, a heretic. And there are people that are like that. There's, there's this pride, you know, I've been doing this for a long time. I know what I'm talking about type of thing. How do you keep someone from despising your youth? And, and Paul gives the answer. But be an example. To the believers, in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity, till I come, give attention to reading and, and exhortation to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. How do you keep people from looking down on you? Know your stuff. Know your stuff. Be a diligent student of the word of God. Because that's the only authority that a man or woman of God has is the word of God. It's not in us, or, you know, in and of ourselves. It's the word of God. And so if someone's looking down on your youth, you know, you're a young person, you, you can't know these things, well, you need to know the, your stuff. You need to know the Word of God. And they kind of realize, you know what? That person, that man, that woman, they know the Word of God. And I need to just kind of back off and not despise their youth. Well, back in Jeremiah, verse 11. Moreover, the Word of the Lord came to me, saying... Jeremiah, what do you see? And I said, I see a branch, or literally a rod, of an almond tree. Then the Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am ready to perform my word. Guys, there's a play on words here. Um, uh, we don't see it in the English. The almond tree was was known as the awake tree. In fact, look at verse 12. The Lord said to me, You have seen well, for I am ready. I don't know if your Bible has a little note, but my Bible has a note next to the word ready, telling me that the word can also be rendered watching. The almond tree. It is the awake tree. God is saying in this vision, he's saying, listen, Jeremiah, I'm awake. I'm awake and I'm watching. And I'm ready, I'm watching to perform my word. Again, these are words of assurance to Jeremiah. He needs us because his task is going to be a difficult task. He ministered for over 40 years as a prophet. And it was going to be difficult. It wasn't going to get easier for Jeremiah. It was going to become more and more 
difficult for Jeremiah. Jeremiah would be attacked verbally and physically by his own countrymen. That's a hard thing, to be attacked by someone. You're, you know, it's like you're, you want to kill the messenger. I'm just simply bringing you the message. And I want you to know, guys, as we're going through and we're looking at the judgments that are coming, in, intermingled in these judgments is God's plea saying, return to me. Return to me. It's almost like he's just saying, you don't have to go through this. You don't have to go through these difficult times. If you just return to me, you know. But, of course, the people would not turn to him. So he says in verse 13, And the word of the Lord came to me the second time, saying, What do you see? And I said, I see a boiling pot, and it's facing away from the north. Then the Lord said to me, out of the north calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. No. The second thing, it's a boiling pot. You kind of picture this boiling pot. And it's facing away from the north. Well, if it's facing away from the north, then it's facing to the south. <laughs> and that's where Judah is. Judah's in the south. Now, you might have a question. You might say, well, wait a minute. So he's speaking about the Babylonians. But the Babylonians, they're due east. They're not north. But we know that the Babylonians, in fact, you'll probably see it in your maps in the back of your Bibles, that the Babylonians took the trade route. They would follow the Euphrates River. They would go up. They would come up from the north, and they would attack from the north. So they were coming from the north, even though as far as a nation was concerned, they were, they were east of of Israel. And so he begins to speak of this nation that's coming. Out of the north, calamity shall break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I am calling. Again, note the emphasis. This isn't just a happenstance. This isn't just something that's happening. Now, guys, we know that it was in their heart to do this, the Babylonians. But let me tell you, it could not, it would not happen unless God allowed it to happen. God was raising them up to be a rod of discipline for his people. He says, for I am calling them, uh, for I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, says the Lord, and they shall come, each one set, let's see. They shall come, and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. So this is a picture of those coming, setting the throne, saying, I'm conquering. I want you to know, this is it. We're taking over here. We're going to be in charge. We're, we're taking control of this city and of this country here. Against all its walls all around and against all the cities of Judah, I will utter my Judgments Again, the emphasis upon it's the Lord doing it. Not Jeremiah, but the Lord. Against them concerning all their wickedness. And this is what they've done. Because they have forsaken me. You know, guys, they have forsaken me. They have forsaken me. I mean, this is like repeated over and over again in the Old Testament through the prophets. This is how they've forsaken me. Burned incense to other gods. And worship the works of their own hands. Therefore, prepare yourself. Now he's speaking to Jeremiah again. Jeremiah, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed or distressed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. Now, guys, he's saying, listen, I'm calling you to a difficult task, but I don't want you to be all dismayed and downcast and, you know, the reluctant prophet. You stand and you be courageous because I'm with you. And when you speak, you speak with boldness and you speak with authority because I am with you. I've given you these words. I've placed these words. These are my words. These are my judgments. I've placed them in your mouth. I'll tell you, it'd be difficult to be a prophet of God. You know, you, you just, you, this is why I encourage you guys all the time to be reading the scriptures. You know, you look at what Ezekiel went through. You look at what, what uh, Isaiah went through. You know, his backside bare 
uh, for a period of time. You know, the the things that they would do, the signs that they would perform. I mean, the things that they would actually do to themselves that would be a sign to either Israel or Judah um, would have been humiliating, would have been so difficult to do. But they were servants of God. They were servants of God. And I think that we need to see ourselves that way. Many times we don't. Many times we just see ourselves as, you know, well, I, you know, I volunteer. <laughs> I mean, we, that didn't even line up with New Testament um, you know, discipleship, biblical di- discipleship that, you know, you just kind of volunteer when it's convenient and type of thing. But it's a committed life to Christ, living for him. He calls the shots. He gives the direction. He gives the message, the word. And we faithfully follow through and do what he's called us to do. He goes on as he's speaking about their their crimes, really, against him. He said in verse 16, I will utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness, because they have forsaken me, burned incense to other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. Therefore, prepare yourself and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day, speaking to Jeremiah, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar and a bronze wall, uh, uh, walls against the whole land against the kings of Judah, and he'll speak to the kings, against the princes, he'll speak to the prince, against the priest, he'll speak to the priest, against the people of the land. They will fight you, Jeremiah. They will fight you, but they shall not prevail against you. For I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. I... I love this. I, I think that we can have great confidence in the Lord. You know, if, if we are a child of God, if we've placed our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we've been given a task. The task is to preach the gospel. It's the Great Commission. Wherever that is, whatever that looks like, that's our task. And, and many times it's it's something that we kind of view as an optional thing, you know, I, yeah, you know, if it fits in. But this is our task. And the Lord promises us, he says, I'm with you, I'll never forsake you. I'm with you. How are you with us, Lord? Well, my spirit abides in you. My spirit abides in you, it empowers you to live the life that I've called you to live. And, and it's one of those things to where, you know, it's almost as if, until we step out in obedience to do the things that the Lord has called us to do, we never really see the power of the Holy Spirit being manifested in our life. He's there. I mean, the Spirit of God is in you. If you place your faith in Christ, He's there. It's the same power, that dunamis power, that we see on the day of Pentecost. It's that same dunamis power that we see manifested throughout Old Testament and New Testament alike. Old Testament, you know, those rare times that the Spirit of God came upon an individual for a time, you know, for a purpose. But for all of the church. Chapter 2, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go, cry, in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord. Now, we read things like this quite often in the proverb or in the, from the prophets excuse me and it's it's really kind of sad and i think we need to be careful that we don't see god as kind of having a pity party because god doesn't have pity parties but he's just simply asking a legitimate question i remember you the kindness of your youth the love of your betrothal when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown, Israel was holiness to the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend, disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. The Lord says, I had your back. I told you when we, your forefathers, when we left Egypt and we made our way across, you know, into the, the land of promise, that I'd be with you, that nothing would harm you. Verse 4, hear the word 
of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What injustice have your fathers found in me? Again, he's not having a pity party. He's just simply asking a question. God is saying, obviously you have a problem with me. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested. I'm, I'm curious. What injustice did your fathers find in me? That they have gone far from me and have followed idols and have become idolaters. Neither did they say, where is the Lord? Who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. Guys, do you know, notice in the Old Testament as you're reading, it always goes back to Egypt. It always goes back to Egypt. The Lord is always drawing the attention of the children of Israel to Egypt. I delivered you from your bondage. I brought you out. I brought you into a wide and spacious land. I, I've given you promises. I am the faithful promise keeper. And, and that's always kind of the backdrop of Israel's unfaithfulness. We see this repeated quite often in the scriptures who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and pits, through a land of drought and the shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt. I brought you into a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness. But when you entered, you defiled my land. Again, the emphasis, it's my land. It's my land. It's my land. Netanyahu's back in. Uh, we'll see how long he lasts, you know. Uh, Israel's needed a Netanyahu because they've had some flaky guys in there. We don't know how long it'll last. Maybe next week something else will happen because their whole political system is really bizarre, very strange. But, you know, when you have the leaders of Israel that are willing to divide the land of Israel... You wonder, have they ever read the scripture? We need to remember, it's God's land. God doesn't say, the United States is my land. God doesn't say, Mexico is my land. God doesn't say, Australia is my land. He says, Israel's my land. It's a land that he promised his people. There's a specific purpose for it. The millennial kingdom, you know, for, of course, it will have its effect upon the entire world. But the things that we read about in the scriptures, a lot of them are taking place in the land of Israel. It is the promise that God made to the children of Israel will be fulfilled in the land. And then during the millennial kingdom, it won't be just a sliver of Israel as we see today, you know, constantly dividing, you know, the, the you know, stripping this way, Gaza and, you know, the, the, but it will, it will go, you know, from uh, the... From sea to, uh, you know, the what Euphrates, you know, go all the way across. And uh, I think it's 13 times the size that it is today. I don't know if that's the accurate number or not, but it will be, it will be what God promised Abraham in the beginning, what the land was for them. But he says, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Guys, Jeremiah, you know, as he's saying this, he comes from that priestly line. And, and he would have known, you know, there's some faithful ones and there's some unfaithful ones. But you kind of get the, the picture that the majority of even the priests, they weren't even asking where the Lord was. And those who handled the law did not know me. That's so troubling. They did not know me. And the rulers also transgressed against me. And the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Look at that last line. And walk after things that do not profit. And walk after things that do not profit. And we can easily say, this is Old Testament. This is Israel. Israel is only, always rebellious. What does this have to do with us? We're not in Israel. We're not uh, Judah. We're not part of those people we're not that that's right that's right you're right we're not we're not them we are those living in the age of the church of Laodicea where idolatry well it's not that we worship images 
made with our hands, the Church of Laodicea worships self. <laughs> I am, I am, I am, I am. And God says, and I'm sick. I'm sick of what I'm saying. The Lord could easily say to this generation of the church, the pastors don't know my word. The ones in the pulpit that are supposed to be teaching my word and exhorting people to follow my word, they don't even know my word. They don't know me. Guys, you think of the age in which we live where we have transvestite pastors I don't know if you saw the video. I don't go looking for it. It's disturbing. But, um, you know, a drag queen in a church, uh, uh, Penny Pentecost or something like that. They even, you know, play with, you know, biblical places and names and everything else. And, and, and just this image, this attack, this abomination that's happening. And if we're not careful, we could say, well, the children of Israel, they were bad, you know. Worshipping Baal and Asherah and, and Moloch and all of these gods and everything. But what's happening in what, you know, and we get easy, well, that's not really the church. Well, as far as the world is concerned, they consider that the church. They don't make a distinction. In fact, only the Lord knows the church. We don't even know the church. Sometimes, you know, as a pastor over the years of pastoring in one location for a long time, sometimes, you know, my heart breaks and I think, you know, does the Sunday school teacher know the Lord? <laughs> you know, does this, does this leader, does this, does this elder, are they studying the word of God? Are they studying to show themselves approved, you know? Do they know the word of God or are they just kind of faking it, you know? And, and these are things that we should ask because we're not, we're not playing with marbles, you know. We're not playing with something cheap and chintzy. We're dealing with the word of God and we're dealing with the souls of men and women. And, and if we don't have the message right and if we're not zealous about, you know, the things we, we say we believe, I think it sends a message. And I think that's where why we see ourselves today a church that is lukewarm in many ways. Can I ask you, those of you that came to the conference a few weeks ago in Bellevue, when you were there, as you were listening, as you're there with other brothers and sisters from other churches from the region, were you inspired? I don't want you to answer. I just want you to think. Were you inspired? Was there a flicker of hope within you that just kind of arose from that moment, that experience, and you thought, I, I want to serve the Lord. I want to get serious about serving the Lord. Did you experience that? I would venture to say that probably many people felt that way. Because that's just kind of the nature of things like that. When you go to a conference, when, when, when you're just with people that are serving the Lord, and, and you say, man, I want more, I want more. I, I remember as a young man when I would go to a men's conference or, or invited to go to a pastor's conference. I wasn't a pastor, but going to a pastor's conference and just hearing the word of God and hearing, you know, different stories about what the Lord was doing in different regions and different countries and things like that. And it would inspire me. And I would just say, man, I want to do that. I want to do that. I want to do that. Well, here's the follow-up question. If you did feel inspired, if you did feel like, I, 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 want, I want to be serious about the Lord, I want to, what have you done with it since then? You see what I'm saying? Sometimes we could have an experience. It's almost like this mountaintop experience, but we never follow through. Nothing ever comes of it, and it just kind of eventually dies out. And I think this is where the enemy really gets a foothold in our lives because then we begin to believe, well, I'm never going to amount to anything. I'm never going to change. I'm never going to get serious about the Lord. I'm never going to, I'm never going to, I'm never And as long as we're there, you know, that loop is going on in our head, we will stay where we're at. I, I pray, I know others pray, we want to see men and women 
step out in faith to do things in the Lord, for the Lord, because the Lord has called us to do those things. Um, when we finish up Mark's gospel on Sunday mornings, I think that I'm going to go into Habakkuk. So it will be the first time in the history of the church that we've been doing that we'd be doing two Old Testament books at the same time. Habakkuk, it's a very short book, three chapters, but I just identify so much with Habakkuk personally right now. I really am identifying with that. And it's just kind of, in one sense, the frustration that we don't see maybe what we once saw. And that was Habakkuk's problem. Habakkuk could say, I I saw the revival. I saw the glory. I saw what God did. And now I see this. It's almost like what we see in Habakkuk. You know, the old timers, they, they... you know, begin to build or, or rebuild, you know, the temple there that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And some of them began to weep. The old timers began to weep and the young men began to cheer. And they couldn't tell the difference between those who were weeping. They were weeping because they said, I remember the glory of the former temple. I remember, I remember. And the, and the young guys that were saying, we have no reference point at all. We're just rejoicing in the fact that we've, we've, we're building a temple. And there needs to be this desire to, to really press in and to say, Lord, I want to serve you. Lord, uh, you know, there are things in my life that, that I need to say goodbye to. Lord, I've walked after things that do not profit for too long. Drop down to verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that could, that can hold no water. How foolish. The Lord says they've, they've forsaken the reliable for the unreliable. <laughs> they've forsaken the real for the counterfeit. They've, they've, they've forsaken the one who could satisfy the thirst For something that can never satisfy. Look at verse 17. I'm going to kind of jump down a little bit because of time. Have you not brought this on yourself? The Lord says through Jeremiah. And that you have forsaken the Lord your God when he led you in the way. You brought this upon yourself. Verse 19, your own wickedness will correct you and your backsliding will rebuke you. Know therefore and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord of hosts. These are heavy things. You you almost want to imagine that that as Jeremiah is speaking this to the people, that the people would begin to be ashamed and they would, they would be sad and they'd begin to cry and they'd begin to repent. But there's, there's, there's no indication that that's what happened. Jump down to verse 26. As the thief is ashamed when he is found out, so is the house of Israel ashamed. They are, their, they are their kings and their princes and their priests and their prophets saying to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone, you gave me birth. And they have turned their backs to me and not their faces. But in the time of their trouble, they will say, arise, save us. But where are your gods that you have made for yourself Let them arise. If they can save you in the time of your trouble, for according to the number of your cities are your gods, O Judah. Wow. Heavy. Verse 33. Why do you beautify 
your way to seek love. Therefore you have also taught the wicked women your ways. Also on your skirts is found the blood of the lives of the poor innocents. I have not found it by secret search, but plainly on all these things. Yet you say, because I am innocent. <laughs> you know, it sounds, like, it sounds like the church of Laodicea. I am rich. I have need of nothing. Surely his anger shall turn from me. I'm innocent. Behold, I will plead my case against you because you say I have not sinned. The Lord is coming. You say, how do you know? How could you say that with such confidence? Only because of what the Lord has told us through his prophets and through his own words. So we look with expectation, we look with joy, you know, our Lord comes. But until he comes, we're to occupy and to be faithful, right? You know, on Monday night, I was talking to some of the guys, and and on Monday I just had a kind of a crummy day. I... um you ever do that? You get into your own head and you just start thinking of stuff. And and I was doing that and I was just kind of thinking of things. And I I just, Lord, you know, almost glorying in the past. And so some of the guys I was talking to, the older guys, and I said, you know, I kind of feel like <laughs> Habakkuk a little bit because, you know, I came to Christ kind of at the end of the Jesus movement and in Southern California, or in Northern California, but we would go to Southern California. We actually moved back down to San Diego, and and um, just kind of the excitement of those days. Um, Tracy and I were we had moved back down to Southern California. We were living with my parents for a short time, and when we were there on Sunday mornings, we would go to Calvary Chapel in Encinitas because my parents live in La Costa or lived in La Costa and so that was the closest Calvary to us so we would go there they met in the YMCA so we'd go there on Sunday mornings and then on Thursday nights we would go down to San Diego uh, to Mike McIntosh's fellowship it was in an old movie theater probably seated about 500 people or so I don't maybe more and we'd go down there and it was so exciting just to drive down the boulevard to see the marquee of the theater um, and to drive up and, and to know that there's a church that meets there and there is zero parking for the church. There is no parking lot for the church because it's a movie theater. And like, you know, kind of a movie theater in a neighborhood. So there's no public parking. So they had a bank kind of across the way and they would park there and then you would have to park you know quite a ways down and because it wasn't the best part of town they had these guys um they weren't bouncers they would be kind of like ushers but they were on the street and so you would recognize them because they were usually these big you know hippie guys you know and they had shirts that said Jesus or something like that. And so they would kind of walk with the ladies and make sure they got from their car to the church and then back and everything. And this building would fill up with people. All the seats were full. And then the floor would begin to fill up. And it would be the teaching of the word and then some Christian musician. You know, there would always be someone different. 
And then there would be an altar call. Every, every Thursday night there would be an altar call. And you would just sit there and watch people stand up and walk forward. And it was just so mind-blowing to see all these folks coming forward. And we would take people there, you know, and they would get saved. And it's just so wonderful. You know, before I was a Christian, you guys know, because I've told variations or uh, bits and pieces of my testimony, but, you know, I um, born, raised Roman Catholic, so religious, became very disillusioned with religion. Uh, you kind of throw the baby, kind of throw baby Jesus away with the, <laughs> you know, the basket, um, uh, figuring that, well, Jesus doesn't really have anything to offer. There's no power here because I'll tell you in Catholicism, there's no power. It's all liturgy. It's not Bible. It's liturgy. It's something else. It's not Bible. It's communion. Let's take the wafer, take Christ, you know, and there's your power. And like many people in my generation, we became very disillusioned, and so we started looking at different things. Growing up in Southern California, we had... Uh, access to all sorts of bizarre things. Self-realization temple there in Encinitas, one of our surf spots, Swamis, or the Krishna temple in Pacific Beach, or you had variations of, of different, you know, groups like that, uh, kind of Eastern mysticism. You had the Moonies, you had the, I mean, just every group imaginable was there. And a lot of people my age kind of got caught up in this stuff. And so when you get caught up into some of these things, you know, if you became a disciple of one of these gurus, there were things that were required of you as a disciple. And so, you know, uh, I never got into it deeply, but... But I knew people that did, and they got, and they were kind of sold out to that. All that to say that I had kind of this, you know, this experience before coming to Christ, and then when I came to Christ, having heard the gospel many, many times, hitchhiking, people would pick you up just to tell you about Jesus. I love that about that time as well. People used to hitchhike so that they could tell the person that picks them up about Jesus. Or people would pick up hitchhikers so that they could tell the captive audience about Jesus. I mean, it was like everything was an opportunity to talk about Jesus. You'd go out surfing, and someone would paddle right up to you, and they'd start talking about Jesus. Where are you going to go? I mean, if it's breaking right here, you're there. You're staying there, you know. And everything was about Jesus. And there was a zeal. There was an excitement. And when I received Christ as my Lord and Savior, it was like no one had to tell me, now there's expectations. I kind of had these own expectations in my own mind. Started reading the Bible. And I started seeing how, well, Jesus had disciples. He had his 12, but he also had lots of other disciples. And some of the disciples, they split when Jesus would say things that they didn't like, like, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. But then there were the other disciples, the 12, well, minus one, that, that stuck with Jesus through it. And I knew that there was an expectation. Jesus isn't just a figure that we're to bow and cross ourselves and say, you know, yes, you know, praise the Lord. But Jesus is someone we're to commit our lives to, we're to live for him, we're to serve him. And it had an effect upon us. And a lot of the people that I was around, they just... There was this, this sense of, I think the Lord's calling me to this. I think the Lord's calling us to do that or this or whatever it might be. And we would just venture out and sometimes we'd fall flat on our faces. But at least we were stepping out in what we thought was the leading of the Lord. And I look back now from this perspective. Now I'm an old guy, you know. So I look back of all these years of walking with Jesus. And I realize now that those little things that we would do, Tracy and I, little things we would do, and just kind of thought we were just doing it because it was an opportunity to do something, that it was the Lord. 
who maybe, maybe he wouldn't say to us specifically like he said to Jeremiah, but maybe he would. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Really, Lord? Yeah, because he's God. He's eternal. He's outside of time. I knew you. I knew what path you would take. I knew what direction you would take. I, you know, and, and, and you just kind of look at your life. And I think of, you know, Tracy and I, I the mere fact that we're, we were married. And, you know, I look and I say, this is the woman that Jesus wanted me to marry. So obviously. Thank you, Lord, for that. And then even when we weren't, you know, I didn't know the Lord. And, and even when we were making decisions that were really kind of self-serving, you know, we want to move up from Southern California. We lived in Santa Barbara. We want to move up to the mountains. We, went, we were hippies, so we wanted to, like, homestead someplace, and we're going to move up to the, and, and you know, that we're going to move up. And so we go up to Northern California and end up in a town that we didn't even know existed. And we moved there. And we moved there because I'm promised a job that fell through a week before we loaded up the U-Haul and moved. But we moved anyway. And I came to Christ a week, I think it was a week or two weeks, after moving to to Grass Valley. And I just think of how the Lord, he... He knew, he's directing, he's leading, he has a plan. And if, if we could see ourselves that way, you know, Lord, you have a plan for me. What do you want to do with me, Lord? And, and I'm convinced that, you know, I had no, zero desire to be a pastor. I mean, that didn't even enter my mind. I thought, well, I like working with kids, so I'd like to work with kids. So I started teaching Sunday school. And I'll tell you, teaching Sunday school, when I was first saved, hearing and studying lessons that I'd never read myself before preparing for the lesson, that was eye-opening. There was growth that was taking place. There was Bible knowledge that was being gained when I was teaching third graders. And then hearing about, oh, you know, hey, there's a, there's a gel ministry, and these guys, they're, they're doing this pancake breakfast at the Grange Hall up in Grass Valley, you know. Uh, you should come. Yeah, I'll come. I come, I don't know anybody. And there's all these California youth, you know, authority guys in there, and I thought, this is cool. I'd like to do this. Can I do this? Yeah, you can do it. Come on Sunday with us, you know, and started doing that. And then it was, Lord, I... I just want to, I want to, I want to know your word better. I want to teach your word. And I want to have people at our home. And so we opened our home up and we started the Bible study, home Bible study. We had a home Bible study in our home. Um, You know, the very first one we had, I was a very young Christian and it was, uh, what a nightmare it was. We would sit down in our little apartment And I would put on like a song from Keith Green, something like that. And then I'd say to the group there, I said, well, what do you guys think about that song? I mean, I wasn't teaching anything, you know, because I didn't know anything, you know. And it was like we just kind of sit around and talk. And then it developed to where then I was actually teaching the word of God. And and if it wasn't in our home, it was in someone else's home. and, And I didn't know at the time that the Lord was teaching me how to teach the word. I didn't know that. And I always liked, you know, kids, as I mentioned. So it did junior high ministries for three years, did high school ministries for three years. Because, man, they're fun to hang out with. Teenagers, that's fun. Teach the Bible and go bowling, you know. And it wasn't until much later that the Lord put upon my heart to go pioneer church. And it didn't happen overnight. It was years of praying, Lord, I'd really like to go pioneer a church somewhere. 
Are you calling me to do that, Lord? Are you calling us to do that, Lord? And the desire kept getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And then I was asked to come on staff as a youth pastor for a church in Sacramento. And I thought, oh boy, this is great. You know, I I could do this ministry full time. Well, this is wonderful. And my pastor said, yeah, pastor wants to ask you to come on staff. He says, you pray about it, but I don't think that's what the Lord has for you. I think the Lord has something else for you. That's how my whole life was. As a young guy, I'm in my 20s, and uh, my pastor said, uh, we're having a meeting tonight. Um, I'd like you to come to the meeting. And I show up at the meeting, and there's all these older guys, and, um, and I'm there, and I'm at an elders meeting and a board meeting. And my pastor says, well, I've asked Dan to come because I think that the Lord is going to use him, and I think he's going to go pioneer a church one day. And I'm thinking, oh, that sounds good to me. I, you know, and he just wanted to, he wanted me to have exposure to these things, you know. You know, guys, I'm not tooting my own horn. I'm simply saying that if God could use an idiot like me and just direct your steps, and all it was is desires. I'd like to do this. I'd like to do that. I'd like to do this. I'd like to go over here. I'd like this. I'd like that. And then I I didn't sit and wait for someone to come knocking at my door and say, would you like to do this? But I just stepped through the door when there was an opportunity to do it, and the Lord was preparing me and equipping me. We are talking about this the other night. Jim Lawson said something, and I think there's some insight to it, but he says, you know, maybe it's because we're so close to the coming of the Lord that, you know, the Lord's just not moving like he did one time. He didn't say it that way, but, but it just seems like we don't see as many people that have a desire to go out, to do something. I hope that's not it. You know, the criticism that some within our camp, Calvary Chapel, our divided camp. Some have criticized and said, well, you know, you guys are always talking about Jesus coming back. It just, it, it's, the message to the young people is God's done working the way he once worked in the former generations. And, and you're just, you know, you're keeping them from really stepping up. Well, I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think a man, no man inspired me to do something. It's the Lord. It's the lord that's doing it but here's the thing guys and i know you know this and i know i exhort you in this a lot but if we walk in the path of foolishness the lord's not going to he's not going to call us and there are so many that we've given ourselves to other things we give ourselves to you know video games we give ourselves to sports we give ourselves to whatever we love our passions but i'll tell you if we give ourselves to the study of his word if we give ourselves to prayer if we give ourselves to the lord to just see what the lord might do in your life our last prayer meeting was so powerful i love our little prayer meetings People come to our prayer meetings and they don't know what to do. Because I, I don't know, I think they, I, I, because most prayer meetings, you do more talking than praying. But we don't do that <laughs> because we don't really ask for prayer requests. Because we figure if you have a prayer request, you're going to tell Father what your prayer request is and we're going to agree with you. And that's what a prayer meeting is. We're praying. So we don't need a prayer request to explain why we need to pray for this. Let's just pray for it. And I'll tell you, I was thinking our last prayer meeting, because we had just looked at on that Sunday, Jesus saying, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. The flesh is weak, Peter. Watch and pray. And I was thinking of how we need to give ourselves to things like that. We do. 
I, as a pastor, I, I, I wouldn't ask someone to step in and do a ministry that didn't come out to a prayer meeting. I mean, you don't have to come to every meeting, but, but it's kind of, this is the heartbeat of the church. I mean, now we're, we're traveling <laughs> through prayer. We've just been in India. We've been praying for our missionaries, Guna and Victoria, in, in India. Now we're going over here, you know, and we're, we're doing this, and we're praying for people in the church in this situation, in that situation. And I'll tell you, when I leave our prayer meetings, I feel so uh, charged up. And I'll say to the Lord many times as I'm driving away from the building, I say, this is the most productive thing that we do at this church. And there's so few who do it. So listen, next prayer meeting, I don't want you to show up because you feel guilty. But you could give yourself to prayer in your house. You could do that. When, you know, we used to announce uh, prayer meeting tonight. I mean, it's like we were we were programmed for uh, low expectations, you know. Uh, prayer meeting tonight. But if you can't make it, go ahead and drop your prayer request in one of the agape boxes, and we'll be sure to lift lift it up for you. You know, it's almost like we'll do the heavy lifting for you. You don't have to do it yourself. And that is the problem with the modern-day church. The lukewarm church. Lord, we pray that we would be inspired by men like Jeremiah, the reluctant prophet. He didn't want to do it, and yet you called him to it. And Lord, would you help us to believe that you've called us to specific things as well. Maybe not to be a prophet over nations, but you've called us to something. You've gifted us for ministries. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would step out in faith. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would empower us with your spirit so that we might finish well, finish strong, this last leg of the race, Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, that we wouldn't have to look back over our shoulder and say, well, the Lord really moved then, and boy, that was powerful when that happened, but that we would be experiencing your current moving. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.